Hello and welcome to Gravity. With me today I have Bark Evezhdenov, who is the Program Officer for Colombia's Global Freedom of Expression Program. He previously worked for Freedom House and the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, focusing on legislative reform pertaining to torture prevention and strengthening public assembly, religious freedoms, minority and women's rights. Today's program focuses on the restrictions on human rights in Russia today, particularly restrictions on self-expression and opposition to the regime. Welcome to Gravity, Bark. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start talking about the foreign agents law first. In 2012, Russia enacted a law that required registration of all NGOs that received foreign funding and conducted political activities. In 2015, this was expanded to allow the government to unilaterally register NGOs, and more recently, the government has acquired power to shut down what it deems are undesirable NGOs. The government rhetoric justifying these laws is to curb the influence of foreign political agents in Russian domestic policies. But it really appears as a crackdown on political opposition and human rights advocacy in particular. On February 10, 2016, the Justice Ministry was successful in obtaining a court order for closure of Agora, an association of human rights advocacy groups that has defended the anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny, Pussy Riot, several accused in the Bolotnia trials, where protesters of Putin's second inauguration were tried criminally, among many other important cases. Currently, the group has 300 pending domestic cases and 157 European Court of Human Rights cases pending. Pavel Chikov, Agora's chair, states that not only will the group appeal the decision, but as they have steadily downsized to be one step ahead of the government, the organization is a mere shell, and the attorneys that have the cases pending are no longer officially part of the organization. So they believe that individually they won't be accosted if they do the cases. Now, what is your opinion as to the group's likely success in being able to not be accosted by continuing individually with the cases, also the success of their appeal to the uh, court's decision for liquidation, and the general impact of the foreign agents' law in Russia? Sure. Well, I'll start with the last question. Um, the law definitely had a, you know, tremendous and horrible impact on civil society in Russia. I think, you know, the main thing if we look at it, I think the Russian government knows that civil society is not very developed in terms of um, seeking funding. And uh, so what this law does, it's, it pretty much prevents organizations to exist if they receive funds from abroad. Unfortunately, due to Russia's economy and a lot of maybe maybe also let's say lack of uh, I don't know lack of lack of c civilian understanding of what human rights are and that you need to support them kind of from within um, that you know this law completely cut off again funding and a lot of other opportunities for NGOs and um, and with that in mind you know the law was passed to make sure that. Um, to make sure that organizations are not able to function. And so, you know, I, I we have actually a partner, um, Media Law um, media law Protection um, Organization based in, uh, in Russia, and they've been uh, hit with the foreign agent law. And they went to court and they appealed and they actually had support from a few um, government institutions in their region. And they failed on their appeal. And mm -hmm. talking to the person in charge of the organization, she did explain to me that they know that once you're hit, there's just no reason to get rid of that status. So there's there's a there's a clear understanding that once you're labeled a foreign agent, once you're um, involved in political activities, that your fate is sealed. And more recently, the actually the Russian uh, Ministry of Justice, they clarified the meaning of political activities. And the clarification included pretty much everything. Any any mm -hmm. sort of opinions on a government official, any anything related to politics now is a political activity. And it makes sense. That's what political activism is. That's, you know, that's just people having opinions about what's happening in, the in, uh, in their countries or, you know, abroad, and it's normal to have these opinions. And yet, if your funding comes from abroad, you know, you're you're not allowed to share them. Right, but particularly with Agora, they had 
foreign funding, but then yeah. when they were when they had to register, they uh, got rid of all their funding, and then they wanted to get rid of their registration. But even without any foreign funding, the government still went after them as an undesirable NGO and got their court yeah. order. So it, it seems that it's more to attack political opposition. And when you think about how wide, as you were saying, the definition of politics is, I mean, in, in a way, what is political is what is opposed to the hegemonic situation, yeah. right? Because everything else is neutral. <laughs> so, But it's, yeah, it's true. And, you know, what's interesting is that actually, what, two or three days ago, the uh, um, Human Rights Ombudsman for St. Petersburg uh, he openly said that the foreign agent law is awful, and all it does is oh, wow. it it destroys, uh, you know, civil society and kind of in, independent um, view, viewpoints in in Russia, and that what it does it allows the government to go after civil society uh, that criticizes it. So uh, you know, it's there's no everybody in Russia understands what the law is. Everybody, uh, you know, when it's applied, everybody knows what its purpose is. The unfortunate thing, nothing, you know, can be done about it because of the current regime. Mm. And, and moving on with uh, the regime's crackdown of political expression uh, with respect to media outlets. So there were two recent laws, one that prevents more than 20% foreign ownership in a media outlet and another that allows the, go the government to shut down a media outlet after two warnings. Now, presumably, the government's only going to give a media outlet warning if it's uh, saying something against the regime and not pro-regime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so how is this impacting freedom of expression in Russia and the independence of media outlets? Well, I think I'm not really sure about the independent media outlets. I think what it will impact are probably large cable um, stations. And, you know, some of them, some of them are already kind of um, changing, you know, I, I'm sorry, I can't really recall the name, but I know there's a, one major outlet which sold um, a lot of its ownership to, you know, um, to Russian hands. And, but, you know, if we look at for example, established magazines like Esquire, right? Esquire in Russia is known for its for its investigative journalism, and now now they have to be sold. Yeah. And uh, you know you don't know whoever comes whoever whoever is the new owner. You know that person might change the direction of Esquire, and it's it's a it's it's a popular publication where they're you know with a lot of interesting stories. And suddenly that, you know, that venue might be closed down. Un unfortunately, I feel like we don't really know what's going to happen because I think the the government is just now going to start reviewing, um, you know, the media organization's um, the implementation of the law. Right. So uh, maybe in the next couple of months, we'll know for sure what the impact is. And then apart from... This crackdown on media outlets, there's also a crackdown on social media so that bloggers with over 3,000 daily visitors are now going to be regulated just like media outlets. So therefore, they can't be anonymous. They have to be registered uh, and their visitors will have to be known to the government. All the information must be kept on Russian soil. And obviously, they would be under the two-warning rule. Now, <laughs> with the fact that they can't be anonymous and have the two-warning rule, is this going to be the end of independent social media too? I would say yes and no. Um, okay. <laughs> I, because no, because I think that it's, it's hard to stop people from you know, state, stating opinions. So right. it will continue to exist and, you know, there will be, the government will try to do something to, you know, prevent those outlets to enjoy their freedom of expression. But I don't think it's, you know, I don't think we're looking at a situation like, for example, like, like for example, Iran or North Korea, where there's just no independent uh, bloggers or anything like that. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, looking at the casework, example that we've been following at uh, Columbia Global Freedom of Expression, I noticed that oftentimes the independent kind of bloggers or whoever who gets attacked are people who deal with corruption or or people who deal with, you know, large political like heated topics such as like the war in Ukraine. Okay. Right. So 
I feel that in maybe certain topics will not get as much attention as before, but it will, it will but the law will not necessarily prevent all conversation on those issues. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so there's a lot of opposition from Russians, for instance, London's becoming the new Moscow, you know, with a lot of uh, Russian activists over there, including uh, Khodorovsky. And I know he has media outlets. So I mean, is he still able to project these views to Russia and have uh, and have an audience there? Well, when it comes to, you know, it's it's an interesting um issue because that I think that generally speaks to who reads these independent you know independent news or in, or just you know who who's interested in information which speaks against the regime okay and by looking at statistics for example you know we'll look at Putin's support right? right and the most recent survey which was done by Levada Center which is an independent um which is an independent NG, uh, organization in Russia and you know they're they have quite a lot of credibility. They said Putin is enjoying, you know, um, support of over 80%. Okay. That means that 80% of Russians are okay with his policies. 80% of Russians are okay with what's happening in Russia. Okay. And so what I'm thinking is that means that there is a, a minority of people who are outspoken, who are being critical. And that means that there's probably a minority of people who are even listening to these things. And these people will probably be able to find the information, which is... Uh, critical, but I feel that the majority probably is not even seeking this sort of information, you know, and it, it makes sense because I feel that that's how people just operate in generally. For example, I'm not going to go and read, you know, Fox News or something like that because I don't agree with their policies. Right. He might be just preaching to the converted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it wouldn't increase uh, the opposition numbers. I am quite dismayed at the 80%. Uh, favor. I, I thought that maybe with, you know, the economic sanctions against Russia and the crumbling oil prices and the economy going down that, uh, you know, people <laughs> would be more yeah. critical of the regime and not so supportive. Uh, but it's, it's, it's Russia. There's quite a lot of nationalism that's developing there. And maybe, you know, there's a strong belief that the world is out there to get Russia. And I think what's happening in Ukraine and the sanctions and everything that, you know, uh, was imposed in Russia, I think the general spin of it is that, well, we're just taking our land back and, you know, your Westerners do it all the time and look, look at, uh, you know, look at, look at how they're punishing us, you know, and, uh, and, and it's just, you know, it's very, very unfortunate, but I, I don't really see that changing anytime soon. Um, because actually, and I feel like it's not going to change anytime soon because um, a couple of days ago, I read an article saying that there is a new legislation being proposed and the legislation is going to criminalize speech that offends patriotism in Russia. So that means oh. that there, there are people out there, there are legislators out there who are thinking that, you know, Russia has a lot of patriots and those critical of this you know, um, kind of unquestioned patriotism to Mother Russia somehow need to be punished. And patriotism will be linked to the regime's policies yeah. <laughs> instead of being a Russian patriot against the regime, which is <laughs> not very pro-Russian people at the moment. Um, so, so speaking of this law against patriotism, and again, that's a very fluid and uh, politically charged term, but... <laughs> How is um, an, the anti-extremism law being utilized to discriminate against minority religious groups in this tide of increased nationalism in Russia? Yeah. Well, the law in general is, is quite poor. And honestly, more often than not, the law is not really – the law is generally used to discriminate against activists. And uh, mm. so, for example, we, we're seeing again and again and again people getting um, charged with extremism for – stating opinion about what's happened in Ukraine. There is an organization called the Russian Consumer Rights um, Protection Agency. And what they do is that they, they, they just tell Russian citizens about what's, what rights they have as consumers and what they should and shouldn't do. And, you know, they kind of, they 
advocate on their on the consumer's behalf for better regulation of products of services and recently by recently i mean last year around december they had an article uh, published about it, it was a travel note mm. explaining to russians that if they want to go to crimea they should travel th- through the ukrainian border that when they're there they should try to respect ukrainian laws and the the note was written because the organization received complaints from several people saying that they traveled to Crimea through the Russian border, and then they had a hard time after that receiving the Schengen visa, mm-hmm. because in the eyes of the EU, Crimea is being occupied. And this was all published in this travel note. And because of that, um, the prosecutor general of Moscow, they charged the organization with extremism, <laughs> with, uh, yeah, with, with actually trying, with saying that uh, they're undermining territorial integrity of Russia. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous because it's just a travel note. Okay. Right. So we're seeing the extremist law being used to silence, again, discussions of sort of heated topics. At the same time, when it comes to minorities, we do see um, there, there was, a, again, last year in, in um, southern Sakhalinsk, the court of first instance, they found that uh, a, a book which translated um, prayers from the Quran was extremist because the the prayers claim that uh, in the court's view that that you know Islam is superior to other religions, uh, which under which is against you know equality and which is against the Russian constitution. Again, it's logical because I feel that most religions they say that we're yeah. the best. That's the whole thing. That's the but, whole point, right? Yeah, that's the whole Al point. God. <laughs> yeah, but for the court to look at it and to review it in such a manner, and these were not comments about the prayers there there were no commentary in the book it was purely translations of the prayers from arabic into russian thankfully on appeal the law not the law the judgment was uh, repealed but i do feel that that happened uh, mainly because the appeal was actually led by the leader of the chechen republic so there was a lot of political kind of pressure on the court to do the right thing oh that's good yeah yeah and and unfortunately, this extremism is not only, I, I, particularly against Muslim people, is seems to be not just uh, contained within Russia, uh, and yeah. there's a xenophobia all over the place. Of I course, mean, yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's really. But it's interesting about Russia because Russia has quite a large Muslim population, and right. ethnic ethnic Muslim population as well. It's like almost fifteen percent of Russians are Muslim. And yet, um, you know, we see judgments like this. We see the mayor of Moscow saying that he doesn't want any new mosques there. And it's it just it's it's a bit strange because again, the country, the country historically had a large Muslim population. They, you know, were fine with it. Right, and but Putin has been servicing the church, hasn't he, to support his regime? Yeah, he has, and I guess it goes vice versa. I, I think it falls it's it falls back into this idea of the pure conservative Russia, and you know we see for example there there are new classes being introduced across Russia about the history of uh, Orthodox Christianity, and the you know these are government sanctioned um, classes, and they're being sold as not not advocating a certain type of religion, but more in terms of like this is Russia's history. And, you know, there's, of course, there's, of course, uh, truth to that. But it's very interesting that, you know, their focus is not on religions in general, but there's a special course for Russian Orthodoxy. Right. So when the Russian Orthodox, when it's about them, then equality doesn't apply. But there is Islamic verses, then you go to court because yeah. they're praising a god and all gods should be equal. So therefore, it's... It's a threat to uh, Russian society. Well, just speaking of this increased, uh, you know, conservative tide in Russia and religious tide, I mean, Russia has an increasingly egregious record protecting LGBT people. And it, it recently had a law that banned gay propaganda, which really just means that you can't express your gender identity and or sexual orientation in public 
and increased attacks against LGBT people, but the police seem to not be doing absolutely anything about it, nor prosecuting the perpetrators. So could you tell us a little bit more about the discrimination that LGBT people are currently facing in Russia? Yeah, well, we're seeing a continuous kind of repression of LGBT rights, especially when it comes to, you know, um, in the in the public space. So um, we definitely know that, for example, looking at the media, there are at least two cases from last year where LGBT forums were shut down um, because LGBT, what these forums did, they provided uh, psych- psychological and just as a, a kind of a platform to, for teens to discuss their problems and, you know, issues at home. And in one case was in St. Petersburg, and I think the other case was in Eastern Russia. And both were shut down, you know, on the same claim that, you know, what these forums did is that they, it was the, you know, they produced propaganda of homosexuality uh, for minors. And what was interesting was minors discussing this issue. So it was minors bringing up these things. So, so we're seeing that at the same time, when it comes to just, you know, in terms of public assembly, we're really, I think there is, there is sort of a continuous reminder to the LGBT community that they're not really wanted in Russia. For example, there is a law that thankfully hasn't been passed, but what's kind of suggested several times was, uh, on banning all sort of, um, kind of all showings of non-traditional sexual orientation. So people holding hands in public would be now uh, liable. People, you know, kissing in public would be liable. People, I don't know, showing that you're interested in the same gender somehow, that you'd be liable because you're in the public space. So thankfully the law hasn't been passed. The law, it wasn't even reviewed. It was reviewed actually by the, uh, by the kind of legal department of the Russian parliament, which said the law is, the law serves no purpose and shouldn't be passed. But yet, you know, it was added to the docket several times and uh, the parliament refused to review it. So, but it's, you know, who knows, maybe the last the last time they refused to review it was in uh, actually on, uh, I think, February 16th or 17th, which, is, which was just, you know, last week. Um, so who knows, maybe, maybe the law will pass or maybe it will just continue kind of being postponed. But nonetheless, it sends us message to the LGBT community saying like, hey, the parliamentarians are still thinking about you and the parliamentarians aren't going to stop and they're going to try to repress your rights. And is it not hopeful at all, though, that the law is not being passed and there are people fighting for them in parliament as well? Well, the law, I don't think the law, like the, the law that I mentioned, I don't think it's, it's ever going to pass. I think it's more of a show kind of saying that, you know, um, by some parliamentarians saying, hey, constituents, look, we don't like LGBT people. Please, please continue to support us. Um, but okay. there is some hope. For example, actually, uh, the court in St. Petersburg, they, again, just last week, they allowed a transgender person to change the gender in, in their passport. So we're seeing, you okay. know, when it comes to that, there's, there's, so it's, it's a bit weird. It's kind of, if, if you're showing your interests, if you're showing your lifestyles publicly, Russia doesn't want that. But I feel that as long as it's in private space, that's sort of allowed. So in that way, if you're trying to change your gender by still aligning with the, you know, correct sexual <laughs> divide yeah. and, the, and, and keeping everything in the closet otherwise. So, yes, it is. Okay. It's kind of interesting. I mean, this is a completely different country, but Iran has a policy whereby um, you would be in prison if if you practice, if you know, if you're um, openly gay. But yet, if you, for example, you say that you know, I'm a man and I like other men, you have an option to change your gender. I see. And once you change your gender, then it's normal because it's a man and woman's worship, and it's to them, it's fine. And I'm not saying Russia is going that way, but you know, there's this kind of twist idea of like, well, as long, like you said, as long as it falls into the rubric of what's acceptable, then it's then it will be permitted. I wonder how delicately Iran presents this option to homosexual people that it aims to sweep under the carpet. Of course, being homosexual and transgender are completely different. One may simply prefer their own sex, while another person 
may wish to change their sex and by changing their sex find themselves on the wrong side of the approved sexual divide. For instance, a woman that wants to change to a man but still continue relationships with men. And of course, the woman that wants to change into a man has always been a man. There is a plurality of sexual and gender identities that we need to accept. Iran and possibly Russia, it seems, are using sex surgeries to rather entrench the sexual status quo. Moving on to our next topic of discussion. The European Court of Human Rights has been very critical of Russia and in December last year, Russia enacted a law that allowed it to simply disregard its rulings if it conflicted with the Russian constitution. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the cases that have elicited this Russian response and how this law will be enforced and the impact it will have? So, yeah, the law... um, I actually reviewed the law and I don't really think it's it's that bad and we... we spoke to other experts in Russia. They also don't think it's it's necessarily that bad. What the law says is that it's not as if it's not as if the Russian government can simply say, "Well, we don't agree with this judgment, and it's going to be void." I mean, there is a process. So, for example, let's say uh, there is a European Court decision against the Ministry of, of the Interior of Russia, whereby it requires that the Ministry of Interior does something, okay, or changes something, changes its policy. Right. So, the Ministry of Interior of Russia then can say. Well, we believe that our policies don't violate the Russian constitution. And if they believe that, they can uh, kind of state their arguments and send a letter to the Ministry of Justice, which will then review it and then file uh, an appeal with the, uh, with, the, with the Russia's constitutional court, which then again will have a review and of, of the constitutionality of the law in the books. Um, so... You know, the, there is a kind of long process and there is a judicial review of kind of whether or not to apply um, judgments of the European court. Um, at the same time, again, I feel that it's, again, it's it's limited to just very few um, small things. I, I feel like there are very, very um, few cases when this law would be applied. I feel that, for example, if if an LGBT case goes to the European court, right? And the court says that your propaganda of homosexuality law is illegal. And then we know that actually that the Russian constitutional court reviewed the law and they stated that it's fine, that it uh, that it's, uh, doesn't violate the Russian constitution. And if mm-hmm. the European Court of Justice says, no, this law violates the European, European Convention for Human Rights, then it's very likely that the uh, Russian Constitutional Court will choose to ignore this judgment. But I think more often than not, we're really not going to see this this new law being applied. I feel that it's it's mainly been done, again, it's mainly been pushed to show that, look, Russia is independent, Russia is sovereign, Russia is not going to listen to Europeans who are punishing us for Ukraine. Right. Part of Putin's strategy, it's if you're going to impose sanctions on us, then we're just going to impose sanctions on you (laughs) and not let in any products. Yeah. Yeah, which I believe some people think that Europeans are just not sending products to them instead of Putin not allowing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because, you know, um, I have an acquaintance who um, was telling told me a story how she tried to explain to a friend of her. My, my country is also Russian, and she lived in Moscow several years, and she was trying to explain to her other Russian friend that these these sanctions or this ban on imports is actually a Russian-imposed as a response to the ban on Russian exports. And her friend just re- refused to believe that. She she thought that, no, 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 it's the Europeans who are not selling their cheese to us. It's, you know, all these things. And it's ridiculous because these products still are ending up in Russia. They're just going through Belarus. They're going through kind of different states. But so there's it's it's not it's not as if there's this embargo on European products because people are used to them. People want them. It's just that. Again, it's 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 showmanship. All right. Putin's very good at that, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> With all the restrictions that we've been talking about, is there any freedom of assembly left in Russia or is the government only allowing permission for pro-regime 
rallies and people to assemble? I think it's allowing people to assemble as long as they don't discuss certain topics, which <laughs> right now the main topic is you cannot discuss, for example, uh, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. And in December of last year, but okay, let's look at this. There's, there's, uh, there's been a new law, public assembly, which has been passed, whereby now if you violate, um, if you violate the, these kind of administrative uh, guide guidelines several times you can be imprisoned and last year in december we actually had an activist who, who got three years in prison because he uh, he organized i think two or three public assemblies without permission and of course they dealt with ukraine and they were peaceful public assemblies. peaceful public assemblies yes it's so yeah and and uh, hopefully again the judgment just was in December, so hopefully it's going to be appealed and nothing will happen. Generally, what happens with these sort of judgments is that um, what they become void, or if it's if it's a if you're a first time offender, you you are granted amnesty. So hopefully the person's not going to go to prison, but nonetheless it sends a sign saying, "Hey, don't just assemble. You have to get permission, even if it's something small." And uh, and Ukraine is a really really heated topic. Also last year, we had a woman who was arrested and she organized a single person protest. <laughs> and her single person protest was her holding up a sign saying, you know, we shouldn't be in Ukraine. And she received <laughs> she received a sentence of imprisonment for just holding up a sign in front of some statue. Well, I don't know if we should think it's hopeful that the regime is threatened by one person holding up a sign. But yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, it is. is. It- so speaking of this situation in uh, Crimea now, Putin's had quite a strategy of enacting these frozen conflict situations where he's proliferated semi-autonomous regimes backed by the Russian state from Transnistria right now to uh, Crimea or Novorussia, as I think they're calling it. How, how are people's rights affected in these regions? I'm not, you know, honestly, I'm not really sure how people's rights are affected in the regions in particular. I mean, um, but I can tell you that the the rights of the citizens, of Russian citizens, are thereby affected very much because of what's happening there. As you know, as I've mentioned already, public assembly, freedom of expression, all these rights are continuously being violated because of an embargo on all information about whatever is happening in Crimea and Ukraine. So we're definitely seeing, seeing detrimental effects in Russia, in peaceful Russia. I mean... One could reason that it's probably much, much worse for people who are living in those regions if they're critical of what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, I have been reading reports that activists and journalists who have been speaking out are subjected to torture. Uh, they're intimidated, their property has been confiscated, and that holding a Ukrainian passport is tantamount to treason, and you're not allowed to be legally employed, have access to public health care or own property if you have a Ukrainian passport. But... I, I, you know, I don't know whether that is true or not. It seems like it probably is a terrible situation that is true, but I'm not sure in the, um, the verification of my source. Yeah. But, but speaking of, uh, going back to Russia and how it's impacting Russian citizens, has, have all these laws prevented further protest against what's happening in the Ukraine or are people still talking about it protesting people are still talking about about it i wouldn't i don't you know they're they're uh people write uh people criticize it's just the way it's done is is you know it's kind of in a roundabout manner because for example again last year there was uh, a teacher in a small town who wrote a poem it's, it was called a poem to, to Ukrainian patriots. And the poem was a bit gory. It did say that, you know, Putin should be killed and things like that. And not specifically killed, but that he should be filled with lead bullets. You know, so <laughs> it was it was not the best poem out there. Yet the man was charged with extremism. Um, again, he wasn't really in prison. They allowed him. It's sort of... There's this, there's this thing which they do in Russia whereby you're not really in prison, but you're not allowed to change your place of residence for a couple of years. So did, mm-hmm. they did that to him and they banned him from any teaching activities. So the, so the 
person is not allowed to travel and yet he cannot work. <laughs> so it's going to be, you know, so it's, it's kind of, a person is going to suffer for a couple of years. Yeah. Nonetheless, he wrote a poem, okay? And he's just a small, a teacher from a small town. Like, I'm pretty sure whatever he writes isn't very, it's not going to have a huge effect on a lot of people or change people's opinions. And yet, in the mind of the prosecutor of the town, it was it was bad enough. It was the threat of example, possibly. Yeah, yeah. The tide against political opposition just seems to be increasing, and Putin seems to be clenching his fist, right, and and ruling with an iron one. Um, so, with all this curtailment of freedom of expression, both on and offline, the imposition of the party line, people not being able to uh, oppose the government without fear of arrest. How is there any hope for a resistance among youth and to have any democratic movement to overthrow this regime? Yeah, well, I think that I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word overthrow. I mean, because, you know, it's uh, I but I, it, it is difficult, but, you know, meeting and speaking to Russian actors, we could see that there's still quite a lot of activity. You know, I think the issue is not is not in the lack of activity. I think the issue is that in the lack of interest in changing the status quo among the majority of Russians. Okay. I think that's the biggest pro- problem. Because eighty percent, you said, favored Putin, and, and yeah, you said that Putin. was an independent statistic, right? That yeah, the statistic was independent, and so you know, if, if kind of Putin is Putin is serving his constituency. Okay, so how the question is like how how the, then do you operate as a political minority, as a progressive minority in a country which is extremely conservative and which seems to be, you know, has has this belief that they're being attacked and they're not willing to compromise. And I think I think that's that's the question that needs to be answered for any sort of political change, and you know, before you start changing people in power, you have to you have to you know realize what the people really want and how to work with with that or around that. Yeah, I believe there's a lot of political opponents of the regime that, that are Russian nationals that have emigrated uh, as refugees uh, and, and and a lot of them being in London. And I had mentioned Khodorovsky be, before because I know that right now he's um, establishing these think tanks uh, that try and support a democratic movement, but he's only looking at people that are under 40 because I think believe that he's already uh, given up hope of any regime change before Putin uh, dies or retires. Everybody's looking to what will happen after Putin. It might be easier to, uh, you know, change the regime then. But I'm not sure why everyone's so defeatist. But I guess you said because he's so popular that maybe there's no supporters right next to him that are as popular as Putin. Maybe it's his personality that is supporting. But it's it's more than that. I don't think it's it's about, you know, it's about, again, waiting for Putin to leave. I think maybe the 40 thing has also to do with, you know, ages and the fact that, you know, younger people are generally more progressive. And so maybe the hope is that the majority of the population is, you know, especially older population, which votes, which is, you know, somewhat politically active, is just not willing to do anything and is, is fine with, with what's happening there. Now, do you think that part of the issue is that Russia's always had uh, regime change from above and that it's never really had a period where it's been able to, you know, where the people have been able to digest the history of oppression and have a truth and reconciliation period to move forward? Yeah, I don't really think that's the issue because, you know, there are countries which had similar changes uh, or, you know, suddenly overnight there was kind of this thing where we're now a democracy in which, I mean, I wouldn't say they operate perfectly, but they're still, you know, um, they're still able to. And maybe if it came from, but, you know, when, when the Soviet Union fell apart, there were thousands of people outside on the streets protesting for a different government, you know? So, so it's not as if, it's, it's not as if there was no grassroots or, you know, popular support for a more democratic Russia. Um, you know, one could argue, well, Russia never really experienced a democracy. So people don't know what, let's say, they're missing out on. But again, we look at countries which are now successful democracies, like South Africa, 
whereby yes there was a you know there was a popular kind of uprising against the apartheid regime but when um the government changed it you know the people didn't know what it's what's going to come and it's working so you know we we'll have to so yeah I, yeah i don't really think that's 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 a reason for why um you know we russia is the way it is now what in your opinion is the main reason that russia is the way it is now i think it's a combination of factors uh political socioeconomic i mean i i think the population there in general i mean we have to i i think generally one one could kind of stereotype countries which are sort of um somewhat developing or, or not very strong economically they they're often quite quite conservative and and so i think there well first thing i think there are a lot of expectations of russia because it's a major country with a lot of influence and i think there is a lot of hope and desire for it to change and it's or to be a bit more uh politically progressive and it's just it's just not and um but again i think it's because but the people are fine with it i think that's that's the main reason and the people are fine with maybe it's maybe it's because you know again they're they worry about you know jobs they worry about smaller things they worry about family they have very strong traditional family values whereby they think you know that lgbt people are violating that whereby they think that you need to get married at let's say age of 22 and have like 10 kids <laughs> you know and like all these values that haven't haven't gone from russia and um and i think I'm not saying these are bad values but i feel that um it it just shows that when it comes to kind of political thought or progressive thought that russia is still uh, lacking it just seems also just from my experience uh from having uh part russian family and uh and knowing of a russians that it seems in our russian souls that we're a little pessimistic and defeatist in a way uh and and that that's a tragedy but has also inspired you know great russian wit and art and yeah. passion so <laughs> no that's um, definitely true yeah um so so moving away from russia just for our last few questions you're the program officer for the columbia global freedom of expression program can you tell us a little bit more about the program and your work there which might involve more countries than russia i believe it certainly does sure well um we are an initiative which was started just 2 years ago by the president of columbia university who is a freedom of expression scholar and our initiative is led by anyas kalamard who is the um she was in charge of article 19 which is a preeminent freedom of expression um ngo and so you know we have, we do several things but our main thing we try to analyze trends we try to understand what's happening in the realm of freedom of expression globally not just in russia but you know everywhere everywhere um everywhere where freedom of expression is under threat or where it's blossoming where we're trying to understand why it's happening or who's well if there are new laws being passed or how they are being applied and um and you know and because because of what because of everything that's happening in Russia we do pay particular attention to it just because there's so much um coming out of it and and do you uh, at all focus on the increased surveillance that is happening around the world by any chance that we might do. inhibit we do we look at surveillance we look at all issues that deal with freedom of expression speech surveillance be it the right to be forgotten be it you know intermediary liability or be it you know changing your gender in a passport <laughs> we're right. looking at all of it because you know uh, because freedom of expression is such a broad broad field that pretty much everything falls under it so um our focus again is generally on something that's kind of precedent setting or trying to understand new trends and what are the new trends um well what i guess the the big trend is we we spoke about russia using you know laws on national security and and ways to fight extremism to kind of silence dissent and we're seeing seeing that's a trend not just in russia but it's a trend that is being used globally from india which is you know being touted as the world's largest democracy they're using sedition laws to uh to you know arrest and um activists who speak against corruption um to you know to turkey to egypt 
So we're seeing these laws of national security apply quite, quite, quite broadly and widely to silence people. I mean, even in the United States, <laughs> now we have, yeah. you know, the Apple court order, which, uh, you know, that that's going to be um, a yeah. very important case because generally when you're given, you know, a, a subpoena or a motion to compel, it's you have to be in custody, in possession or in control of a document yeah. and there shouldn't be an unreasonable burden. And now they're basically asking them, to uh, provide to, to, to create <laughs> so not that they have, they have control they know they don't to create a backdoor which they don't seem to understand won't apply to just the one phone but to everybody's uh, phone and they seem completely fine and if you look at all the you know presidential candidates even you know Bernie Sanders who apparently is you know against the uh, the national security big brother, he, he's even saying, oh, there can be a middle ground. Obviously, national security trumps everything. It's quite disappointing, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's also quite disappointing. There seems to be this general trend of increased xenophobia. I was just reading, and at first I laughed, and then I, and then I thought it was quite tragic, that there was a city in Texas where there was a, f a flag in Arabic that had a message of love and it pretty much shut down the city and the city was so paranoid and thought it must have been some kind of terrorist attack. And then... Yeah. <laughs> because it was in Arabic. So this uh, perception that, you know, Arabic is linked to Islam and that is... It, it, I mean, yes, the Quran and everything was in Arabic, but, you know, plenty of people that speak Farsi, that speak many other languages yeah. are Islamic. And not all people that are Arabic or speak Arabic are Muslim. So that's narrow-minded. But more narrow-minded is that Islam is just tantamount to terrorism. <laughs> so, yeah. It's... Again, uh, you know, the case I mentioned from Russia, I mean, the, just it's a perfect example of, you know, and even Muslim countries do the same thing. Like, we've seen cases from Kazakhstan where, again, their parts of the Quran or surahs were um, put, you know, are now banned material, and it's not, um, oh. it's not as, and and it's a country which is what ninety nine percent Muslim, mm -hmm. and and it's not as if they went after Quran and said this is bad. It's more of you know there is they arrest some people, maybe sometimes extremists, and they look at the materials they have and they just you know with the kind of white stroke of a pen they just they just ban everything that the organization produced, which sometimes has religious material, actually religious material. All right. And even a lot of African countries that have quite large Muslim populations are banning um, the burqa and akib and shador because yeah. they're saying that you could, um, that terrorists use these costumes and that therefore, you know, if, if now that if you do wear the hijab, you're only doing it because you're either supporting terrorists or that you're hiding a bomb. It's, it's just, it's crazy. It's, it is, um, it is. And then just recently with the uh, the, the Parisian, uh, unfortunate, the unfortunate Parisian bombings, um, I mean, I've been reading that there are many uh, young Islamic men on house arrest for no, yeah. absolutely no reason at all. I don't know if you've been. Yeah, because, and I think that happened, you know, because they passed that, uh, I, th I think they're under emergency measures now, yes. whereby, you know, habeas corpus has been completely, you know, thrown out of the window. So what's happening now, everybody who's been surveilled, everybody who the government thought is a, maybe somebody is now, you know, being questioned right away without, without kind of enough of a cause. Yeah, I mean, and isn't it ridiculous to say, oh, they're, they're bombing us because they hate our freedom. Therefore, we ha must get rid of our freedom to protect our freedom. <laughs> it is. It's ridiculous. And, you know, we, we are seeing this again, um, you know, speaking of Paris during, uh, you know, they had a gigantic environmental meeting last year and it was quite important. And yet, because of what happened in Bataclan, um, you know, they completely... They, they completely suppressed freedom of public assembly. So everybody who had a voice, all the protesters, you know, there are over 100 uh, people who have been arrested and were, you know, um, in court now because because they tried to protest against certain regulations. Um, and, you know, the government didn't discriminate against 
a legitimate protest because in the eyes of the government, it's like, well, if we, if there's a rally, terrorists might come and kill some people. And because of that, you know what? It's better just not to have any rallies and not to let people talk. Or they don't want any rallies against uh, the very weak climate change regulations yeah. that they have, you know, uh, touted as this, you know, the savior to climate change, which it really isn't. And it was such a corporate sponsored event that yeah. I, I believe they were... You know, having terrorism, I mean, obviously it's really tragic when there are terrorist attacks, but uh, it seems that the government is servicing these terrorist attacks, and and not just the French government, but (laughs) numerous governments all around to um, prevent any opposition, you know, that they don't don't favor. I mean, it's such a great enemy, isn't it? It's uh, it's an undefinable, continuous enemy that can be anywhere that just begs for increased, you know, government surveillance and power. And, and, and no, then, you're right about that, yeah. And then on the other hand, you know, I, when you think, oh, it's a it, terrorist attack, very tragic. Uh, everyone around the world had, you know, the French flag. And it was. It was, you know, I cried when I thought of it, you know, having, uh, know, knowing Paris very, very well as well. Uh, but the same day... Many, many people died in Beirut, and we just think that's okay. Well, <laughs> that's usual, right? I mean, yeah. that no one, no one puts up flags when we hear, "Oh, there was a bombing in Nigeria." And I, and I believe with the Charlie Hebdo, that many more people were killed in Nigeria that day in a terrorist attack, but it didn't, yeah. you know, make the news. So, and then when American drones hit targets, is that terrorism? <laughs> so. You know, and I think we live in a world of uh, of contradiction. No, I, I agree with you. There, there are quite a lot of issues what's happening right now. Unfortunately, there's yet a solution <laughs> because it's, it seems to be, to some extent, it's just getting a bit worse and worse. But that's why we have people like you working in programs like Colombia's Global Freedom of Expression that are um, targeting these issues and looking at trends and voicing yeah. and hopefully, this. Hopefully there's going to be an impact. You know, that's that's the only hope we can have. Yes, and if we give up hope, you know, people have they've already won, right? So we must yeah. be optimistic. We must tread forward. And, and uh, you know, w- the work that you're doing is just uh, fantastic in working towards it. So I thank you very much both for your work and especially for your time talking with us on Gravity today. Thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much, Alex. That was the end of our program for today. I hope you found the discussion to be informative and will join us next time. Thank you, and enjoy your day.